0: Hey Randy, it's nearly the end of the year. Are you feeling Christmassy yet?
1: Wow, that's true. It feels like the season has really crept up on us this year. I guess I'm feeling as much like Chris Mahana Kwanzaa as I can feel when it's not yet December and we're all in lockdown. But I do have the fairy lights up in my home office.
0: Oh, pretty. And you know, at this time of year, I really start to look back at what's happened since last Christmas and reflect on the good and the not so good and think about what I want to achieve next year.
1: You mean like um, a retrospective?
0: Oh, yeah, I guess so.
1: So what's one thing you would change about this year?
0: Um, You're not serious, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good point. You know, reflection can be such a powerful tool, and our guest this week used it more than most to drive his last company, FutureLearn, to great success. Matt Walton is a product leader, and he was the founding's chief product officer of FutureLearn.
0: On reflection, it was a great interview and I'd definitely do it again, but I'd probably stop waffling so much and let our guests speak. So let's go. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product.
1: Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love.
0: Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos.
1: Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more.
0: Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you.
1: Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast tonight. We're really excited to have you. Uh, First time I met you was actually the first time I curated a product tank, and you gave a great talk about orchestras and festivals, and I'm sure we'll get to that later. But for now, and for anyone who wasn't there or hasn't watched the talk, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you, and how did you get into product?
2: thanks randy really nice to be here tonight um, i've been very much looking forward to spending some time in both of your companies randy you said to me recently um have you got something to rant about and uh, <laughs> finally, yeah, i got back in touch and said i've got something to rant about um so yeah, uh, so me matt um so i've been doing i guess kind of product for about 20 years or so i started um my career at the BBC, where they called everyone a producer. But I found myself basically um, working with um, software developers and designers to build new things, uh, you know, at a time where it was kind of quite hands-on and you were writing bits of HTML yourself and so on. Um, And so I spent about 11 years at the BBC, first on the public service side, and then uh, later working for the commercial arm. And whilst I was at the commercial arm, I, I got involved with this meetup group called Product Tank, (laughs) <laughs> it was very early days when it was in a pub, and most of the conversation was about like how do you explain to everyone uh, in your organisation exactly what a product manager is. Um, <laughs> you know, it was very much a self-help group, but I kind of felt you know I'd found my tribe, and so so that was when I you know first was termed a product manager and felt that you know finally someone had put a label on what it was that I did and then after I left the BBC I decided to kind of freelance for a bit and work for various different organisations and whilst I was doing that I stumbled into this amazing idea of a thing called FutureLearn so for those of you don't don't know what FutureLearn was we we were born out of the uh, the MOOC movement so MOOCs are massive open online courses and it's when back in 2012 there was a lot of uh, American universities started dabbling with putting uh, courses online. And so um, the uh, the Open University, um, which is a, an amazing British institution that was born in the 1960s to basically take education to more people than had ever had it before through the mediums of TV and the postal service, uh, decided that this MOOC movement was quite an interesting thing that um, maybe they should get in on the act on. So I got brought in in the very kind of early days when um, a guy called Simon Nelson had been hired to be CEO of this startup, and he he was someone that I'd worked with at the BBC. So I got brought in to think about what a vision for the product might be and put together a plan for how I might deliver it. And before I knew it, I was hiring uh, some Software engineers building a prototype and had committed to launching an MVP in September. Uh, and then <laughs> since then, um, we've I've now grown the the product team. Um, so the organization is about 200 people, but the um, the product team is about 75, including technology, design, and product management. And uh, we've now delivered courses to over 14 million learners around the world that we have signed up um, over that uh, seven and a half year period. And uh, about 18 months or so, so ago, we got £50 million pounds of investment from uh, the Seek Group, who are a bit like an Australian LinkedIn. Um, and so that basically valued the business at £100 million. Pounds. So we've sort of basically gone from nothing, uh, where we got given a basement by the Open University and, uh, you know, see how you go, um, to yeah, partnering with 160 universities from all over the world uh, and delivering Uh, Education at scale.
1: Sorry, and you keep saying the word we, but that was well, you started this about seven and a half years ago, and you've recently uh, made a move, haven't you?
2: Yes. So, um, yeah, so after seven and a half years, um, I decided it's time to take a break uh, and do something new. So, um, I'm, yeah, just kind of starting out on that path. So now is a really nice moment to kind of reflect upon that journey uh, of, uh, yeah, I guess. Growing it over that kind of period because I think you know that's some of the stuff that we're going to be touching on tonight is is, is how to do that
1: yeah so yeah. you grew from as you said from uh, one of the first people in there to uh, quite a sizable organization what did you learn about culture versus strategy over that point because you you said you were brought in to create a strategy but you're also hiring some of the initial initial team and you grew it what did you learn about that so I think there's like the what 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 happened at the beginning,
2: and then what happened next. So I think that very first piece was super important in terms of laying the foundations. So the early work that I did was really around persuading the OU to allow us to set up an organisation that worked in a way that was totally alien from how they did. Mm. You know, like going back a few years as well, like this sort of idea of working in a very kind of agile, cross-functional way, putting things on Amazon web services, all those kind of things, the things that were not familiar to the OU at the time. So, and and I remember the first conversation that I had with um, Martin Bean, who was the vice chancellor of the the university at the time. And he basically asked me to promise him that I wouldn't write a line of code because they basically (laughs) wrote some of the uh, OU's existing technology. And um, and, and, uh, so the the first job was really sort of saying, if you want to do something new and disruptive, then, you know, using technology that's, nearly a decade old and so may not be the right way to do it (laughs) Um, so basically it was about setting out like um the idea of a product vision like the kind of principles of creating an autonomous team with a product manager and that team kind of empowered to deliver upon the vision in whatever way they saw fit um but the key thing really was then about um like I trotted out to Milton Keynes where the OU was based every fortnight. And so we did our sprint review internally, and then it was about going out to to them and essentially bringing them on the journey and showing them this different way of how you could work. And I think it also made the, the the kind of stakeholders there really felt bought into the process because they got to kind of feed in, uh, in those kind of fortnightly moments, but they got to see it develop and be part of that journey. Um, so that that was that was one of the kind of key things, and I think so. Setting out that kind of, um, I think in the in the the talk that um, that Randy mentioned earlier, I kind of talked about like all good bands have a manifesto. So we kind of had our manifestos like this is this is how we're going to do it. So that was really important early on, and then the first members of that band are really important as well because they kind of set the tone. Um, mm. So those first hires I think or the first people that you bring in to work alongside you and having a kind of shared set of values was really important and then I think it's about how you then consciously create the culture Um, and I think we're going to get on to talking about things like retrospectives and so on but like we regularly created that space and that kind of fortnightly moment to reflect on how we were working and at the beginning it was very much about you know agreeing how we wanted to do that and so i guess we made quite big decisions in in some of those kind of conversations but it was about you know regularly making sure that we're consciously doing that and then i think from that point it's then about um there was a i went to um the south by southwest festival about a year or so in like and it was the point where we've gone from i guess being a ragbag bunch of freelancers that was doing a project are kind of going, how are we going to turn this into a, a sustainable thing? And I saw a talk by um, uh, Phil Libin, who was the founder and CEO of uh, Evernote. And he said something that really kind of resonated with me at the time. And I, I guess has kind of been in the back of my mind ever since, which is that he, he said, my job is not to preserve culture. It's to make sure that it evolves in the right way, and that's basically mm. kind of how I thought about it since. Really, is it's about you know you've got to keep changing if you're working for a fast-moving startup that's growing fast. Like it's going yeah. to things you do doing now are never going to like work when you're bigger. But doing it in the right way is the kind of trick.
0: <laughs> so one of the and one of the tools that you use for developing and evolving that culture in the right way is. Um, is the is the retrospective what's your like how do you approach retros you know uh, how how are they structured within the business so within future
2: so I guess just for a quick bit of context is we worked in a very kind of cross-functional way um, which like you know obviously many organizations do um, but we had um, product teams that were generally about seven people and so on um and then we obviously then we line managed by discipline so i Mm -hmm. i was responsible originally for product management and then we had a cto responsible for technology and a uh creative director responsible for design latterly i did kind of step up and represent the whole organization but you know broadly that was the kind of pattern um so we used retrospectives in a variety of different ways. So I guess when we, when we were small, we were one team and that was the kind of whole organization having uh, at the end of, we worked in fortnightly sprints and at the end of that fortnightly sprint, we would uh, run the retrospective. Then as we grew, um, we kept that part of the culture so each of the kind of teams so when we split into multiple teams each of the teams would continue to do their kind of fortnightly retrospectives but we did mm-hmm. then start to introduce things like a discipline retrospective that happened less regularly um, but the product management team uh, where would, would also meet and have their own kind of retrospective we also had project retrospectives um, which were more ad hoc so if we had done something kind of big we would involve everyone from across the business that was involved in that thing uh, to reflect on that project um, and I guess the other kind of thing that we did that was very similar to a retrospective was we, we uh, introduced personal retrospectives so we we actually used a tool called 15.5 to do it but essentially it, it meant that everyone at the end of each week, kind of finish the week by thinking about the things that have gone well, um, you know, what they might do differently and what their objectives for next week might be. So I think we had those, you know, those different kinds of moments of reflection um, at those kind of different levels and different cadences.
0: And how, if you've got the kind of, everyone's familiar with or, you know, would be familiar with how you would do a product team retrospective, is it the same sort of format then with the kind of, you know what I did last week, what I'm planning next week or or month or whatever it is, and then any blockers is it that kind of thing, or did you change it in any way
2: so with our with the discipline retrospectives, yeah, very similar kind of drill um we actually um we used Trello and people could populate the board throughout the week and those kind of things so yeah we did we did very similar kinds of things to what you might do. Within a product team, um, retrospective. Um, but the tone was a bit different because it, what was really nice about them is it was when you spend, I guess, most of your time, uh, as a product manager with your cross functional team rather than other product managers, it was alongside like the regular team meetings and so on. It was a way of creating that sense of team and, mm. and I guess helping you know reflect on our practices as a product management team but also kind of um note the things across the organization that were you know where it might be a consistent problem across teams and and that i guess Mm. for a team it gave them a moment of um was kind of mutual support, and, you know, often things would come up and uh, an action would come out of it, and maybe two of the PMs would go and pair on, like, doing something about the problem. But actually lots of things that also came out might be things that I would take away to the kind of product leadership team uh, because they were bigger than something that maybe the team could fix themselves. Um, and I think the other – like, for me as a leader, it gave me – because because one of the things that I, you know, as, as you kind of grow, um, and one of the things that's special about a retrospective is that it's a safe place. And that means that actually, as you grow, probably, you know, the, the chief product officer being in the retrospective is not something that you want to happen. So I like for a long time, I, you know, I was not in a team retrospective because it needs to be a safe place, but it gave that the, the team, the, the the discipline retrospective gave me the opportunity for some of those things that were themes that had been emerging, I guess, within other retrospectives to then, to then be fed back to me. And I, I read something yesterday, actually, which was um, a, a kind of reflection that like, as a leader, you quite often, want, when you step into that role, you start to, or you know, there's, there's a danger that you might lose some of the things that actually got you there in the first place. So being able to be empathetic, to have, self-awareness to be transparent and to be able to kind of give gratitude to your team when you kind Mm. of do that distance thing of becoming a leader uh sometimes you stop doing all of those things or because you're (laughs) just and actually the team retro is a really good way to stop doing that like because you really do empathise with the problems that your team are going through um and you can do some of that kind of i guess servant leader thing of like yeah yeah how can i how can i make this better for all of you because i've kind of you know heard and understood some of the things that are blocking you or whatever
0: so if you had lots of teams uh all having retrospectives how would you kind of get the summary of all of that information would would it just be kind of fed up when it was necessary through kind of line management channels or you know would you sometimes join them or how how would you do that
2: so generally, it would be through, I guess, a variety of sources. So through one to ones, um, through the discipline retro that I mentioned. You know, if big things came up in the retro, then the team would would raise that, and I guess it, it depended upon what the problem might be, whether they would bring it to the whole product leadership team, whether they bring it with me, or whether it would be an engineering challenge. Right. So. I think part of the – what we always try to do is basically empower the team to make the changes themselves. And yeah. and I think that's kind of really – that's a really key part of it. Um, and that may be that they can do it themselves, or it may be that they actually have to kind of go and seek help in some way. But, you know, it's yeah. the same
1: thing, really. You said something earlier about uh, retros need to be a safe space for people. I'm curious, if, you, if it's not a safe space, retros can actually be a bit harmful. I've heard of uh, stories where people get very accusatory at each other and it, it's not a good situation. So how do you run a good retro and what are the, the signs to watch out for that uh, either you've set it up badly or it's going off the rails? Sure. So the key thing, I think, is like, we always
2: started our retros by reminding people of the prime directive. Um and, and you know, we didn't necessarily always do that every team retro because teams, you know, get into the flow of doing it. But, you know, quite regularly, like, you know, stepping back and reminding people of the prime directive, which was coined by, uh, I can't remember his name, Norm, someone or other. Um, but essentially basically says, regardless of what we discover, we assume that everyone was doing their best, no matter, you know, with the resources and uh, mm. skills. I'm available, essentially. So, essentially, is saying, basically, reminding people to do that. I think facilitation is also quite key. So, what we'd we try and do is to get um somebody that wasn't in the team being the kind of facilitator. Mm-hmm. And we we actually had a a retro bot on Slack that was about how aware pairing or finding a, a someone to to facilitate your retrospective. And because every team needed someone to do that, like that it generally worked in terms of like, you know, someone saying, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Um, so that's very helpful. I think spending that kind of first bit of time quietly writing post-its as well in, in order to make sure that maybe you don't get the same voices dominating and, and then to do the kind of how you group together, similar themes together is also really helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And I think also the key thing it is really about, arriving at some actions to do about it. So like it shouldn't be just a kind of gripe fest. <laughs> and I think you always need to make sure that you do always have the what went well, what went less well, kind of to make sure that you're you're in balance uh there. So I think I think all of those things and I think you know making sure that the team it feels like a team and it's about, you know, how you collectively Improve, like it's. I think it's always about like how do you improve. It's not about like, yeah, seeking blame. Like that's the thing that you just have to keep making sure that people are reminded of. I think.
1: And for anyone who hasn't seen it, I, I managed to find it while you were while you were talking, Matt. So it's Norm Kirth, and the retrospective prime directive is regardless of what we discover. We understand and truly believe that everyone did the best job that they could, given what they knew at the time, their skills and abilities, the resources available, and the situation at hand. There you go. There we I, go. I, I, <laughs> In
0: Randy's dulcet yeah, tones. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, yeah. And yeah, we had that. like and like on on meeting room walls as well. So, you know, again, if like something's starting to go off track, you know, someone might just tap the sign on the wall or whatever.
0: (laughs) Are you struggling to find the answers to your product questions? Keen to learn from others in the community and want to know where to go next in your career? Mind the Product can help.
1: Mind the Product membership will help you to level up your career build better products, and lead successful product teams. And as the world's largest professional network for product people with decades of product management experience, you won't find this anywhere else.
0: As a member, you'll get exclusive access to premium editorial, product experts, and product peers tackling similar challenges, plus brand new self-paced online training modules that cover core product skills like goals alignment, prioritization, hypothesis and testing, and more.
1: For more info and to become a member today, visit mindtheproduct.com slash join.
0: So it sounds like an awful lot of retros. Did you ever get retro fatigue and any sort of personalities in the team going, I'm fed up of thinking about what I've done or, you know, analyzing it. I just want to like move forward
2: so I think the key thing is keep them short and sweet change up the format like you don't just have to do the you know the kind of smiley faces or whatever like I I remember you know doing things like there was a like what pulls us up and what brings us down and it was like a kind of ship kind of thing and it's you know some of the same questions but you can kind of mix up exactly how you do that just to kind of keep it a bit interesting and that's also where if you're switching around facilitators and so on. That can kind of help, you know, Mm. certainly people want to bring a bit more creativity to how that session might go. Um, And and, and so those, and the, I don't don't know if I mentioned this when I gave the previous answer, but like when we did the discipline retros, they were only like once a month. So we wouldn't do those as regular. And project retros would be, you know, fairly irregular because it would be generally when there was a kind of bigger project that you kind of wanted to look back on. And the format for those. Do you want me to briefly talk through how we might run a
1: before you do, just quickly, I've seen examples of uh project retros where they're done right at right after launch or sometimes like six months later. When would you hold them?
2: <laughs> um
1: it would depend, I think,
2: upon the project. You know, it's a classic. It depends question, and it would also inevitably depend on people's diaries as well. <laughs> um, but I think you'd kind of want to do it soon enough to be able to to make sure it's fresh in people's minds. So whatever you could do, really, to do it relatively quick. But I think it, you know there is that kind of like when have we actually when is it done? And generally, things are never done. So I think it's about picking the right moment where you think you can, you know, tease out the learnings from it. And the way we would generally do it is we would construct some kind of timeline, like, and that would normally be crowdsourced before the session happened. And then the first part of the session might be people can then add their own recollections to it. And so what you start with is then an agreed set of facts. Um, And another fun thing you can do, and I guess this is like, you know, how do you mix up the retro fatigue, um, you can get people to draw a line of like how they felt during parts of the project, um, and that 's quite interesting because like if you 've got people drawing lines where you know high is i 'm feeling really good and low, feeling really bad, you get all these wiggly lines, and sometimes everyone 's lines will be in exactly the same place, and you 'll be like, "Why was that such an awesome moment, or what on earth is going on there? Why were we all like totally and dumps? and sometimes mm-hmm. lines will be in totally different places, and again that 's also really interesting as so like well why?" you know, from a design point of view, why were we feeling really upbeat and yet the kind of stakeholders or the engineers were having a totally different kind of pers- perspective of that part of the project. Um, and then that also then allows you to kind of like, if you then get people to do the post-it note thing, um, it allows you to then kind of group the themes chronologically. So that means that you can do that quite quickly and then kind of talk through it in a kind of chronological order. And it's generally a quite a cathartic thing, I think. Um, And like, if you can also involve, like, you know, we've done it where we try and involve like key members of the member of the leadership team, like particularly if something went particularly well or particularly badly, because generally, like people's perspective of projects might be a little bit kind of distorted depending on who they've heard what from and so on. And and I think it's a really good way of getting a much more complete picture, particularly if you set it out with that kind of blameless kind of premise. and I think if you then want to really do something about it, you kind of need leadership involved in that conversation uh in order to, you know, maybe take on board some of the actions of things that need to change. That that is quite a uh you know, sometimes a trick to persuade people to kind of give up the time to do it. But I think, you know, if you if you can do it, then often people come away kinda of going, Okay, I you know, I've got a perspective on that that I would never have done <laughs> in another way. Um, so, uh, and if not, then I guess it. Guess it's like you know. How do you kind of share the kind of key takeaways in a way that's quite kind of I guess visceral and real? Need <laughs> to like stories and so on.
0: So, did you ever find that people would wait until you know that if there was an issue, kind of mid sprint or kind of mid project, or you know, with within a, a discipline that people wouldn't address it outside of the retro that the retro became becomes like the area where all problems or issues are aired or was that not the case i
2: don't think so um
0: i find it i find it interesting because i've certainly been in situations before where something's not gone quite right on a project or you know within a um iteration of something and someone will say to me let's have a retro <laughs> like are we literally just having a retro so that we can talk about this one thing that went wrong <laughs> that just seems really the wrong way around to do it
2: <laughs> yeah 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 I think um I mean I think that's where the cadence actually really helps because if you do it as a regular thing then it's not no one, people don't go into it like kind of it's a big deal like you mm. know like There are, sometimes that does happen with project ones. Like, you know, if a project went off the rails or whatever, then, you know, people may dread the retro. Um, but if you're with the kind of, if you can do it with a regularity, then it kind of means that it's not something that people dread. I don't think. Um, the other thing that's really good about sticking to a rhythm is I think it makes people feel more willing to change because it means that you can try something for a fortnight. And then if it doesn't work then you can change it back again and you've got that kind of moment to kind of do that Um, Mm -hmm. so it's a very good way of like doing a kind of low risk rollout because you can roll the change back
0: (laughs) and do you have any rules around the actions that come out of retros because sometimes you can end up with a great big long list
2: Um... (laughs) that's the main rule (laughs) I think basically a small list of manageable actions It's basically exactly like sprint goals. If you've got too many sprint goals, then you're not going to achieve them all and you're going to end up feeling disappointed in yourselves. Um, so I think it's about, yeah, making sure you've got not too many. And like if they're, you know, really important, they're going to come up again. So, you know, don't worry about it. And keep making sure there's someone's responsibility as well, because I think the danger is that, you know, they c- can fall between the cracks and you'll end up in the next retro kind of going, oh, why did, we- nothing happened about this but if mm. it's someone's initials against it then inevitably that, that's going to potentially get more done than other things um although you may find that people are scrabbling around the last day of the sprint because it's like oh
1: no I was going to do that <laughs> <laughs> that's okay if it's only a couple weeks that's kind of the way sprints are supposed to go but uh I'm curious, so FutureLearn evolved quite a lot over the seven and a half years that you were there. And you said you've been doing the disciplined uh, retros for a long, uh, big chunk of that. How did that change over time? And what did you, how did the team evolve? What's something that you might've learned from one of those? So I guess
2: the, the, the first thing is like, as we grew, where we might've changed how we approach those different retros. So like one of the, I guess, the kind of moments of growth was the point where we actually introduced Discipline Retro which was at the point where you had enough product managers for that to be a thing and I think actually there to be that kind of feedback loop with me as kind of a team lead as well Um, so that was one one kind of part of it. Um, We then I guess evolved to the point where we ended up in, you know, as we got to a certain scale in that kind of classic quarterly planning cycle Um, and that planning cycle then also became a kind of nice way that we, uh, another cadence where you could make more organisational changes. So through the the fortnightly retros, that's where you would empower a team to make changes as much as they could um, or, you know, bring things to leadership where you could potentially change things on the fly. But certain things might be things that you know, would need a change across the whole org. Um, And so that kind of quarterly planning cycle moment was a, a moment where we might introduce things like that and we, we actually used so one of the things that uh, emerged also probably through those kind of retro conversations is we ha- we introduced the idea of a firebreak sprint which became a natural kind of segue between courses and that then also became the place where we might do more maintain and modernize work from a technology point of view but also became where we you know brought our eyes up to do more planning but also where we might make a change to how we kind of might go about kind of some of the processes and stuff. so on. So there was a kind of natural moment to do it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I guess it's in terms of some of the things that came out of um, the, the discipline retro, like, you know, it's a whole range of things. So changing from we used Pivotal Tracker for a long while, we, we switched to Trello in terms of the kind of main tool, and, and one team tried it, and then, you know, through that kind of feedback loop, you know kind of other teams and move to it um we decided that product manager pairing was quite a good idea because there's been various things that came up as like this went well this week like um and it kind of made other pms realize that actually you know in the same way that software engineers might spend time pairing on a problem actually as product managers that's quite a good thing to do as well when we when when we were going for investment um it was, you know, quite a good kind of way of like getting a temperature check of like how the team were feeling. And off the back of that, uh, I think I arranged a sort of separate hopes and fears session as a kind of way of kind of helping the team talk through the things that they were hopeful for and worried about. And actually that made the team feel more in control of like this big unknown of like of a, a potential new investor investing a large amount of money. What would that mean for the organization and so on?
0: Did you ever go to a retro where there wasn't any improvement that was needed to be done? Where it was like, we did a great job. Well done, everyone.
2: Uh, I think those kind of retros do happen. And if they do, that's <laughs> a really <laughs> like, you know, that's a really important thing, I think. So if it's just it's a natural moment where the team wants to give themselves a pat on the back. Um You know, I think it's rare. I think there's always something where people are like, oh, can we do something about this?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: But I think, yeah, that happens, I wouldn't worry about it. I think that's a really good moment for the team to kind of go, you know, collective high five and group hug. Uh, If that's happening, then I think, you know, they deserve that moment.
0: And did you ever run, um, you know, you kind of mentioned about how you use them so broadly across the business. Um, Did you ever try running them as a leadership team or like on your strategy or anything like that?
2: Yes. uh, And I guess that I guess is where some of those reflections that I mentioned earlier around. Like if you want to kind of make a real kind of step change or really build the understanding about some of the underlying things that, you know, might need addressing, like doing it with with the with the leadership team or um we did do a couple which were just as a leadership team although i think often like it does make sense to do it as a leadership team if it was you as a team doing a thing um but i think if it's if it's a kind of wider thing which is a kind of project then actually involving you know others in the organization is probably more helpful um but yeah I, and i think that as a tool they work within that situation um the other thing that we we did so um in general i think if you're going to make changes to your culture much like if you're going to change your product um that continuous deployment of change is always more sensible because it's lower cost you're not changing everything all at once so the context is known um so it's not like in the same way that you have when you deploy a, a big uh, change to your website and you have a load of users going, oh, I can't, no, I don't know how this works anymore. I don't know where the thing is. I hate it. Like the same thing happens if you kind of make lots of changes to how you work. Mm. Um, you need to do more comms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think if you if you can deploy change regularly and in small ways and where you can roll back changes if it doesn't work, or you can A-B test it by this team trying it, um and then it's adopted by the rest of the organization then that's a good thing there are sometimes in the same way that there come moments with your product where you need the change to be noticed like it needs to be a kind of step change you're going for the kind of 10x thing it's time to do the redesign or you know pick other kind of analogy here um (laughs) uh, sometimes you do need to do that from a kind of culture and process point of view as well um So, and the retro can help you in that situation too. Um, So one thing that I did at the point where, uh, so we got this 50 million pounds of investment. Um, It was clearly a kind of big thing. It led to quite a lot of change in the organization. And so there was a a smaller leadership team created. Um, So I stepped up to to represent the whole of product, whereas previously I'd co-led it. With technology and design, Um, and that created a moment where the the uh, you know very well respected leaders of those areas actually decided now's the time to go and do something different. So it created a a moment where there was a lot of kind of I guess anxiety and worry within the design and technology organisations because you know suddenly there's a lot of change and they don't have leaders in those areas or they've got leaders that are leaving. So the thing that I basically decided to do is like, how can we turn this moment of worry and change into a positive moment? How can we kind of harness it? And so what I did then was um, it sounds a bit BBC, but I did a, a thing that I called the big retro. And essentially it was about mixing up uh all of the all of the people from the product organisation and then doing five one-hour sessions, which was about what are the things that you want to change about how we work that are bigger than your team? Um, what are the things that we do well that you want to preserve? What are the things that um, are really frustrating that we need to change? And what ideas do you have to do that? And they could be ideas that you've seen other organisations do. And it was a really low investment of time because, you know, as has come out through this conversation, everyone is very well drilled on how to do a retrospective. And lots of the things that came out of it were, you know, very familiar. So, um, so that, was, that was kind of reassuring. There were a few new things or there were bits of emphasis that came out that were interesting. But it meant that um, any, any of the changes that we then made, the team felt bought into because like, yeah. we'd had that conversation. Many of the things that come out through that conversation, the many of the ideas that were proposed were things that we then put into action now, I could have done that as a leader and, it, you know, it seemed like a kind of hunch and like, you know, change is being done to us. There's a great quote, I think, about, you know, if change is done to you, it's disturbing. But if it's uh, done by you, it's exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Um, right. <laughs> That's nice. I
0: think
2: I think that was how that was a real mode of like turning it into a real positive story, which is like, well, how do we want to o- operate as a as a product organization and everyone kind of being part of that journey?
0: Um, mm. And so
2: that was a way of using a retro, which was not about, you know, gradually making improvements. It was about like, you know, stepping back and kind of going, you know, what do we want to preserve and protect and that, what is really good about what we do uh, and what do we need to change? And it was really good because it also gave me a kind of reflection that, you know, new leaders coming into the organisation, it was a kind of nice encapsulation of where we were at and, you know, with the the exec team as well, like being able to have that conversation with some sort of very kind of real stories about, you know, like as a product org, what we felt we did well and what we wanted to improve.
0: Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us. We're like way over for <laughs> <laughs> our timing, but it's been so interesting um, hearing all your stories about retros at FutureLearn. Um, and some great tips in there for um, lots of people to take away. Uh, Thank you again.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: That's it from us this week.
1: Like, subscribe and keep on reflecting.
0: Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor.
1: Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band PAU, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide.
0: If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank.
1: Product tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips.